to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Joining me today, I have a friend and colleague, Dr. Alan Christensen. Alan is a New York Times bestselling author and a Phoenix, Arizona-based naturopathic medical doctor who specializes in thyroid disorders, and he's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, The Adrenal Reset Diet, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease, and Healing Hashimoto's A Savvy Patient's Guide. Dr. Christensen frequently appears on national TV shows like Dr. Oz, CNN, The Doctors, and The Today Show, as well as print media like Women's World, USA Today, Newsweek, and Shape Magazine. When he's not maintaining a busy practice, he's an avid mountain unicycler, a technical rock climber, and he loves watching the stars. And it is an absolute pleasure to have him here with me today. So, Alan, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me on Natural MD Radio. And I'd love to share your brilliant and well-developed views on a topic that I feel like there's so much controversy about in, there's controversy about everything in the food world. And I think there's some things that everybody agrees on, right? Everybody agrees that we all need good quality protein wherever you're going to get it from. We all agree on good fats. We all agree on high quality vegetables and getting a lot of good antioxidant, multicolored vegetables, greens, and all of that. But then we get to carbohydrates and, you know, it's almost like you can hear the penny drop or the pin drop in the room when somebody says, yeah, I think people should eat carbohydrates. <laughs> and I work with a lot of, it's, a, it's really controversial. And I work with a lot of women who are, you know, they're smart, they're educated. The women who are listening to this podcast are, they're, they're researchers, they're citizen scientists. And a lot of my audience is very confused when they read, you know, these extreme views, particularly extreme paleo. And a lot of people are taking all their carbs out of their diet, but I'm not seeing enormous benefit for that for women. Occasionally I do. If somebody is pre-diabetic, diabetic, and most of their diet is composed of carbs, then yes. But I feel that women do better with some carbs in their diet. And I know this is a view that you share. And I'd love to hear how you came to this in your own practice, your own naturopathic practice. So let's start with that. Sure. So I'll, two, two things. One thing I don't want to forget, I'll briefly mention about um, how some of my evolution might change on this and experience and practice. And I'm going to talk about the, the mindset of how we how we really sort out data and arrive at conclusions. So, you know, my story, my focus, like yourself, thyroid, adrenal disorders, my health has been something I've focused on quite a bit, and that's what got me into this whole thing. The, the very intense low-carb thing, I've tried it myself over the years, and, you know, people certainly have some differences and some ranges, but I've been pretty physically active, and, boy, the last the last time I really attempted it was probably about, oh, eight years ago uh, when it was first coming out. I'm like, what the heck? I'll go for this, give it a shot full on. And at the time, I was a pretty good competitive cyclist. And there was a course that it was a we had a home in the mountains, and I would do this one longer course, and I could just barely break an hour on a good day. 
And so I was a, I was a few weeks into a fat-adapted paleo diet and testing it out. I'm like, okay, I'm feeling plausibly well enough. And so I go to do this course. And again, normally on a good day, I could break an hour. A bad day, it used to be like maybe an hour, five minutes. But on this day, it was about 110 minutes, and I was gimping to get home. I was barely, I could barely complete this thing. So I saw a pretty negative shift. And I've seen so much of my patients that... You know, I've watched many with a device called the continuous glucose meter, where I can watch blood sugar 24-7. And I've seen so many that when they've gone very low carb, well, their sugar actually gets higher. And they have higher levels of cortisol from that. The body's overcompensating. And then in the thyroid world, we'll see problems with reverse T3 elevations. We'll see more peripheral conversion resistance and just more, more issues that way. And I think that I think the biggest state of confusion, though, in terms of the conflicting ideas, we have to think about basing things upon what's what's thought or what's known. So you can hypothesize all kinds of stuff. You can look at chemistry and you can look at how the body works. And you can say, oh, well, there's these things called phytates in grains and phytates might be binding with nutrients and, you know, glucose, too much glucose is bad. Therefore, food, some food turn to glucose. And these are all ideas that are they're plausible. But then we look at what's known, what are the actual outcomes, like what's the data that happens when someone does something, and they're different things. So it's almost like, I don't know, like you got a poker game and somebody's got a good hand, which is like a pair, and someone else has a good hand, which is a royal flush. So one hand's higher than the other. And what has happened is a higher hand than what might happen. <laughs> Yeah, and, and let's take a step back too, and let's get some definitions and some concepts. So explain what a carb is, because I know I've had so many patients who have come to me from other practitioners, and they'll say, oh, my doctor told me to go on a low-carb diet, and I've been doing it, but but Dr. Realm, what's a carb? <laughs> yeah, so great question. So I like to distinguish within, within this world, uh, carbs, people think about sugar, and some of use the term sugar interchangeably with carbohydrate. You know, carbohydrate, it's a, it's a hydrocarbon. It's basically a source of fuel. And we get that from a variety of foods. We get that from fruit, from grains, from legumes. We get tiny amounts from vegetables. We actually get really tiny amounts from meats and proteins and scant amounts from some nuts and seeds. But yeah, the densest versions of carbohydrates are going to be things that have some element of a sweet taste to them. Um, the term starch is somewhat interchangeable. And the funny thing is that the word sugar, I always like to distinguish what a chemist means by sugar and what a baker means by sugar. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So, you know, a baker, that's like the white, the white crystalline stuff for baking. And to a chemist, technically the word sugar and carbohydrate are interchangeable. And I think that's created some confusion and also some almost fear because of just that, that distinction. And I, I think too, that when we're told not to eat, car there's been a lot of research looking at the quote unquote dangers of carbohydrates but a lot of that research has actually been done on fast-burning white flour or, or simple sugar products as opposed to slow-burning starches like your whole grains or the resistant starches, which can be in some of the legumes, whole grains, potatoes. And then we're talking about an entirely different burn and energy equation, if you will. Do you see it that same way? Total difference. You know, carbs are one of the big three. We get our calories from just three places, carbs and proteins and fats. Those are the macronutrients. And all of those, we want to think about the quality of the sources. There's good carbs, bad carbs. There's good fats, bad fats. There's good proteins, bad proteins. And yeah, you're so right. The data about good carbs is that 
they are health promoting. And at the same time, you know, bad carbs are awful. We could think about probably fructose or Coca-Cola as like one of the epitomes of the worst versions of carbs. So, you know, all of your all of your food sources, you've got to be wary of the bad ones and thought thinking about the highest quality sources of them. One of the um, most, I think, stunning areas of research for me that I've been working on in my book and just reading a lot about, talking with my patients about, is the relationship that you mentioned between carbs and cortisol. And the way I see it is our brains require an enormous amount of energy. And when our brains think that we're going into starvation mode, it kicks off this very primitive survival response. Your brain sees low energy as a four-alarm fire, basically. And if you don't feed your head, so to speak, then you do start to bump up that cortisol and, and con- like you can almost get this rebound where you start actually gaining weight and having low energy and more inflammation from a very low carb diet. So what's your understanding of this science? And, you know, all spot on and everyone, everyone knows the idea that too much glucose or AKA sugar, too much sugar in the bloodstream is a bad thing. And the presumption is that all carbohydrate that we eat just turns straight to glucose in the bloodstream. And that glucose comes from nowhere else. But the body has so much internal balance and so much homeostasis that oftentimes things don't happen intuitively. So if we consume no carbohydrate, you know, we still have to have glucose. Like you said, our brain, our brain needs that. Our brain has to have that. And so if we consume no carbohydrate or too little carbohydrate, we're still going to make glucose, but we're going to make it out of our muscle tissue, actually. And we're going to use a whole bunch of stress hormones, like you just said, to do that. We're going to strain the adrenals and raise our stress burden. And the problem is that's going to make us less able to regulate that glucose. So we're going to end up storing more of it and burning less of it and having more complications with managing our blood sugar. And then when you burn your muscle for energy, your metabolism actually goes down because you lose muscle, which is sort of a passive metabolizer. And then that creates its own, and you get saggy muscles. You, you know, you just start to get that it sort of atrophy, <laughs> saggy, flabby thing going on. That's not fun either. Right. Yeah, the muscles in the moment are burning calories and longer term, they're one way that we can keep our blood sugar steady. So the more we lose it, then the worse that all goes. So what are the sources of carbs that you recommend for your patients? And of course, it's going to be individualized. So we'll talk about that in a minute for different conditions and situations. But in general, what are your carb recommendations these days? You know, I hear many talk about greens and vegetables, and they are such good foods. You want a lot of those in the diet, but they don't really yield enough carbohydrate to give you an adequate percent of calorie from carbohydrate. So I love, I love some of the denser vegetable carbs, Things like sweet potatoes, squash, um, other other versions of that, regular potatoes, especially the colored ones. But I also love legumes and, and then also grains. Uh, grains have gotten a bad rap, but the data is strong that they, they are health-promoting. One of the strongest pieces of evidence that I find just in terms of like the concept is there's a lot of ways you can look at how someone's health is affected. But probably the most dramatic is that, and no one can debate about, is that someone who's living is healthier than someone who's dead. (laughs) Living longer is like probably the best outcome we could strive for. There's a great book that a lot of your readers have probably followed called The Blue Zone. And there's a few books around that series. 
Yeah, and they've tracked the healthiest populations on the planet. And there's like four pockets that have lived statistically quite a bit longer than other areas at the highest rate of centenarians by far. And all four of those areas, people have been on predominantly been on grain-based diets without exception. Absolutely. The uh, Seventh-day Adventists actually in California are the only group in the U.S. and they are living on legumes and grains. And then I think in Sardinia, one of the major food sources actually uh-huh. is bread. I was surprised, but bread and cheese are two, yep. <laughs> two, and these people, I mean, this one guy, if you guys haven't read The Blue Zone, it's really a fun read. It's great. It's some great stories, but this one gentleman in Sardinia, I believe it was, he walks five kilometers through these pretty intense mountain terrains without roads to feed his sheep every day or something like that. And he, basically he takes some, a chunk of bread and of course, I'm sure it's made with ancient grains and, uh, and some cheese, which I'm sure is made from his own sheep or some neighbor sheep. But I was surprised. I mean, of course, and then there's local vegetables, but only when they're available in season. So the diet is very starch-based. <laughs> well, and then you've got the Okinawans, which is heavily rice-based diet and also a fair amount of soy, actually. Then you also have the, um, there's a great area of Costa Rica, which is large amounts of black beans and also corn products, you know, less processed versions and not GMO, but yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating too. I mean, when we look at all the data that's coming out on the microbiome and the relationship between the both digestible fibers and the resistant fibers, they seem to be incredibly important for feeding a healthy microbiome compared to the denatured white flour type of processed starches, which are the exact opposite. They basically feed the worst of the flora. You know, and along those same lines, I just, I just uh, wrote a little synopsis about all the subtypes of fiber. You know, we often talk about fiber as if it's a thing, but I think I, I think I sorted out like 17 different main chemical classes of fiber. I'm off on that number, but it was, it was at least, at least 15 or more. And the best thing in terms of the microbiome is just diversity and variety. So within the range of foods that one has immune compatibility with, the more range of good natural and processed foods you can eat, the more hardy and diverse your microbiome is going to be. So important. And that, that brings me to a question I'd love to ask about how you manage a certain situation in your practice. So both of us see patients who have often fallen through conventional medical cracks. They're looking for something different and, I imagine, like I do, you often have patients who have complex medical constellations of syndromes and a lot of autoimmune diseases and food intolerances. What I'm seeing increasingly is women who are coming into my practice who are eating almost kind of a mono diet, right? They're eating like chicken and a little bit of broccoli or some asparagus and a half a sweet potato because they're so food sensitive. And (laughs) You know, I'm struggling really to explain the, I'm not struggling, but I'm, I'm spending a lot of time explaining to my patients the importance of diversity in their diet. It's almost like when you put only one kind of plant in a garden year after year after year, you deplete the soil. And if we're only eating one food or a limited number of foods, then we're doing the same thing to our microbiome. But how do you navigate in your practice the need for food diversity within that context of patients having a lot of food limitations? You know, I couldn't couldn't agree with that more. So that's a big concern. And there are, there certainly are situations in which someone has immunologic responses, they have symptoms from foods. So you know, we want to go through the process that you would do as well in terms of just identifying their flora abnormalities and healing that and 
correcting the gut. But at some point in time, it really does come down to a matter of just gently expanding that envelope. And there's there's almost a pitfall that can happen to where if someone does cut out, they're, they're testing to see how they do avoiding foods and they go to a very limited diet and then they add things back in. And it's and somewhere along the way, it's not even a matter of is that food incompatible? It can be a matter of just your body's not used to that food. You know, it's like a thought experiment. Imagine someone is like raw food vegan for a decade and suddenly they have this giant platter of spare ribs. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're gonna have a bellyache whether or not they're pork intolerant, you know, just because they're not they're not used to that. So I'll I'll encourage very small, very gentle amounts of food towards reintroduction. So beans and legumes, many will have gas or issues with them. And there's been some studies about just tiny, almost inoculating type dosages. So I'll encourage someone to start with pinto beans. They seem to be easier based on a few of the trials and go go at like tablespoon doses, like a tablespoon a day for a few weeks and inoculate the flora, you know, let it get more tolerance and phase back in more typical amounts. But yeah, we'll sort out some of the big nutrient dense, high priority foods that they're not tolerating and then look at very limited, gentle amounts to, to sequence back in and start expanding from there. I like that. Do you have any patients or categories of patients that you find are just unable to tolerate starches or carbohydrates in the long run? In the long run? Um, you know, not so much. Certainly those that have had SIBO or yeast overgrowth can have some sensitivities, but same thing by really managing digestion and taking it gradually enough, phasing back things back in slowly. And there, there are some that have had, there's a gal that I just saw probably within the last week, there was a point in time where, let me see, it was actually hippopotamus meat was one of the few foods she was getting this stuff imported. And boy, that, and I think she had like two or three foods that were that exotic that what her diet was limited to. And she would have all these various reactions, histamine reactions with pretty much any other food. But really just by taking the steps I mentioned there and just gradual enough reintroduction and managing her histamine responses, she's, she's now on probably about uh, three, four dozen foods as of last week and, you know, able to regain her healthy, healthy, appropriate weight for her and regain some muscle mass and reverse a lot of nutrient deficiencies that were just overt. So, yeah, that, that can happen even in tough cases. Yeah, I, I actually just read a study. I, I'd have to pull up the article because I don't remember where it was from. It was from a major journal, but talking about taking starches out for five days, doing really low carbohydrate for five days in people who have significant gut dysbiosis. They have a lot of microbiome problems, lots of gas, lots of bloating. They get full quickly, just a lot of digestive problems as a way to do a fast reset or recalibrate the microbiome, that extreme low starch can do that. But are there other times that you do recommend a a low starch diet, a low carbohydrate diet for any of your patients? Personally, I do look at um, APOE genotypes in terms of just working out one of the factors to work out macronutrient ratios for someone. And those those that that may have less less tolerance of, of starch and better tolerance of fat I'll do lower carb, but probably, but not really as low as many talk about nowadays. Like I'll go as low as maybe 35% carbohydrate for someone that has a 2-2 or 2-3 APOE4 genotype. But that's that's about as low as I typically go. And Alan, can you explain the APOE genotype for listeners? For sure. We've got little little buckets that haul fat around in our body, especially our liver, and they're called chylomicrons. And how those chylomicrons work 
is, is genetically variable based upon this particular um, genotype, and it's called the APOE genotype. And there's six versions of that that are found. Um, somewhere around 2.5% of people have an extreme on the low-fat side. Another 2.5% have an extreme on the low-carb side. Uh, about 12% have more moderate low-fat, moderate low-carb, and the rest are more in the middle. So some people probably do much better per, per data I've seen. They do follow. They do follow that, especially when they have one of the more outlying genotypes. The data shown that uh, the three, four, and the four, four genotype also carries higher risk for cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's risk. The four, four has, by by some estimates, the twenty-fold increased risk for Alzheimer's and yeah. possibly the the most obligatory need to go very low fat. And for listeners, this is a conventional test, and because of the prevalence of Alzheimer's can actually be done by your conventional family doc, your internist, et cetera, at a regular lab. It's just become something you can add into a panel. And then, of course, you can get it done through specialty testing as well. Uh, I don't order it routinely on everyone. I usually only order it because of looking for risk factors in uh, patients who have a family history of cardiovascular or if they have a high, you know, I'm coming back with a high CRP or something like that. Do you test routinely for nutritional purposes? Sure. I, I personally do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I haven't used it that way. That's an interesting an interesting way of, of looking at it. So I know that in your book, The Adrenal Reset Diet, you have really done some beautiful research looking at what you, I believe you might have coined the term carb cycling. I'm not sure. It's out there a little bit, but I don't know if you got that going. But the concept of... To be really precise, I did coin the term in that context and then at, in writing the book. And then as the book was getting published... The term became used by some in the bodybuilding community to refer to a different concept where it was, you know, no carbs for two, three days, then high carbs for two, three days. So I did coin it, but before it came out in that sense, it was used in a different context. Yeah, I've seen that um, where you do like high carbs for a couple of days, then low, then none, and then you just cycle it through, but it's cycling over a week. You do, interestingly, very much similar to what I do in my in my practice. I never called it carb cycling before. But my experience, and you know, you mentioned your experience as a cyclist with the very low carb diet. My experience was when I became a vegetarian when I was around 15 years old, it was a political choice, a personal health choice, a spiritual choice. My diet became much more heavily carbohydrate based in that I was eating grains as my predominant base food. And I was combining my proteins, which I know there's a lot of data now that says you don't have to combine your grains and beans at the same meal, but even beans and legumes do have a fair amount of starch in them. And when I started having my kids, you know, I was very healthy and fortunately I have a good constitution, but as I got older, was having my babies, I would notice that if I ate a carb breakfast, like if I ate oatmeal, or even if I ate something like millet with, you know, sauteed vegetables in it, I was, and and millets, you know, it's more of a seed, but I was tired by 10 o'clock in the morning and I was hungry. And then by the time I had my fourth baby, it reminded me there's this movie with Julia Roberts called America's Sweethearts. And she has a breakup in the movie. And, you know, the comedian Billy Crystal comes to her table and she's doing kind of like a post breakup binge eating. And he says to her, are you going to stop when you hit linoleum? And that was kind of how I (laughs) Yeah, it was really, that was how I felt. I felt like um, by the time I was in that fourth pregnancy, I was literally starving for protein. And I was finding that the carb-based foods were making me 
more tired and I didn't have dysbiosis. My gut was healthy. I had no other symptoms. And I'll tell you, I just stopped eating all carbs at breakfast. I went to high protein breakfast, added meat to my diet. And it was literally like somebody took jumper cables and put them on me and charged me back up. So that was my N of one, you know, that was my personal experience, but because I have the privilege and opportunity of working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women. I, of course, you know, it's like when you think about buying a Prius, you see all the Priuses on the road all of a sudden. <laughs> I started seeing, noticing what I had been missing in my patients, which was this pattern. And I started doing something similar for my patients. Let's take the carbs out at breakfast. Let's keep the carbs to midday and dinner time, a little more at dinner. And I was seeing really transformative results. And I think you do a, a pretty similar thing. So, so tell us about that. You know, for sure. So the, the idea behind the book was I realized that weight gain was a whole lot more than just willpower. You know, that didn't, that didn't make sense because animals were gaining weight and even in captivity. And, and I realized that it was this whole, this whole fight or flight, this stress response that we were all being pushed into. And there were so many factors driving it, you know, we really couldn't change every single factor. So I thought, What's an easy dietary leverage that could help to reset this rhythm, this cortisol rhythm? And I realized that cortisol, it's being used to, your body uses it to raise blood sugar. It's a good strategy. And therefore, if your blood sugar is going to run lower, you're going to have higher cortisol. And that's actually a good thing early in the day. You want to have a good morning cortisol spike. I think about it like your internal coffee machine. But you know, then come nighttime, you want to shut that off. But there have been a few large studies looking at what you just described about especially about mental alertness, they've studied that in terms of giving people the same food load, but uh, different ratios of protein, carb, and fat. And it's been really conclusively shown that, yeah, high protein breakfast with minimal amounts of carbs and healthy fats leads to the best mental acuity and the best energy throughout the day. And at the same time, there's been data saying that if you're having your carbs at nighttime, even without changing the calorie load, that will help to foster uh, weight loss, fat loss, less inflammation, you know, less uh, cholesterol, triglycerides in the bloodstream, all those desirable things. And better sleep. Better sleep, yeah. And then sleep is just the magic secret sauce for all kinds of good stuff in terms of also metabolism and brain and mood and body repair. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to direct everybody to your book, The Adrenal Reset Diet, which has such a beautiful orange branding to it. I love that. It's vibrant and energetic. But what are your recommendations for listeners? Do you think zero carbs at breakfast or if they're having a couple of eggs and want to have a piece of toast, either gluten-free or if they tolerate gluten, is, do you feel a piece of toast or a small amount of grain as long as it's balanced by protein and fat or really none at all is better? You know, I didn't qualify it further. You mentioned how you were healthy, you had more leeway, you're younger, more resilient. So if someone's in great shape and they're eating whole, simple, unprocessed foods and, and they're thriving and their doctor says your chemistries are good, don't change a thing. But if yeah. something's not right, then that's, then that's, a, <laughs> then that's a good consideration. Uh, I encourage a simple, simple ideas about the mass of, a, mass of a golf ball. So that can be like a quarter cup or about a golf ball. If you're talking like one of the nice gluten-free breads you mentioned, like the Ezekiel's, about a half a slice of that, you know, can be a pretty, pretty good amount in the morning. And then what do you recommend for lunch and dinner? So, you know, same idea. If what you're doing is working great, but if you want to try something different, so then you basically double and triple that for lunch and dinner. So roughly a, roughly half a cup with lunch and roughly three quarters of a cup for dinner. And so if you're talking about 
beans, legumes, or grains. That's going to be the volume after they're cooked. <laughs> yes. Talking about the pre-cooked volume, that's a whole, whole different ballgame. So yeah, the, the post-cooked volume for some dense version of carbohydrate. And, and again, eat the greens, but don't count them towards that total. Their carbohydrate content, really think about that as being negligible for greens and salad vegetables. This is really the carb-dense foods. So yeah, a quarter cup, half a cup, and three quarters of a cup. And it's fascinating. People think about carbs, you know, especially if people are reading about insulin resistance and glucose and think about the carbs as causing insulin spikes. But actually what we know about cortisol is that because cortisol liberates sugar into the blood, it's also liberating insulin. So interestingly, if you're giving your body the carbohydrates that it needs, you actually see lower abnormal insulin levels, lower abnormal glucose levels. So this can actually protect against metabolic syndrome, diabetes, insulin resistance, and not only that PCOS, which is really insulin, it's a really metabolic syndrome with your hormones getting screwed up because of the cortisol. So this is such a power, and we think about type 3 diabetes as uh, Alzheimer's cognitive dysfunction. So this pattern of including some carbs in the diet can be really protective against some what is now called the Western cluster, or I jokingly call the Western cluster, yeah. you, cluster, you know what, as just the problems that we're <laughs> <laughs> Alan, this is so practical and helpful, and I adore you and what you're doing. Everyone, Alan has a number of books, as you've heard in my introduction to him, but his book, The Adrenal Reset Diet, if you're struggling with what is commonly called adrenal fatigue or adrenal insufficiency, or if you're in overdrive, what I call survival mode, Alan, you call it similarly all the time. And also, if, exact you're, same thing, yep, term. if you're struggling with thyroid problems, which is another huge problem women are facing, Alan, in the beginning, mentioned higher reverse T3. And what's happening is when your body perceives that you're starving because you're not getting enough energy, you're not getting enough good quality dietary carbohydrates, which do become sugar that feed your brain, your thyroid thinks, oh my gosh, this person's not getting enough energy, so I can't burn fuel. There's not enough fuel to burn. So I'm going to take her active thyroid hormone and I'm going to store it away for when there's more money in the bank and I can spend it. So these problems that Alan and I have been talking about and that Alan's book can help you to reset also have a huge impact on your thyroid, particularly if you're hypothyroid. So Alan's book, The Adrenal Reset Diet, Alan, everything Alan does, his blog is wonderful. He's always sending out fabulous recipes and high-quality information. Alan, can you tell everybody your website address so they can find you easily? You know, the easiest place to find me is, is at an address called google.com. <laughs> just, just plug in Alan, Alan Christensen. I'll show it pretty easily. But it's, it's drdrchristensen.com for those that want to type in directly. And even just the colors on your website will give people a boost. It's so happy. It's happy. It's energetic. It's beautiful. <laughs> Vibrant. Alan, thank you so much for making the time to join me and for sharing all this beautiful information with my listeners who will, I know some of them will have their lives transformed. And, and I think it gives people permission to trust what their bodies might actually already be telling them that the really limited high protein, high fat only diet might, they, they might be missing something. Maybe they're really hungry for something and you've given permission to go and try that. So thank you for that. 
You know, my pleasure, Aviva. Just huge amount of respect for your work and everything you do, and honored to honored to take the time to to be with you. Thank you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.